What defines success? You can be the greatest salesperson in the world, but if you don't have the greatest product, you'll never reach the potential. And I felt that I had the best product. I was convinced. No one could convince me otherwise. What happens when you get knocked down? Starting out was very challenging, but you know, for me, the best thing that ever happened was getting laid off of my medical sales job. You know, it really pushed me. What makes some people radiate? I literally had $800 left in my bank account at the time, and it was about the time where I was going to start updating my resume, and I thought, this is it. This is my shot. This is Radiate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, how Tom Patterson went from being a laid-off medical device salesman to CEO of one of the hottest men's apparel companies, Tommy John. Tom founded the men's undershirt company after he lost his job, giving him the push he needed to pursue his entrepreneurial dream. Using his deft sales skills, Tom soon got his products on the store shelves at Neiman Marcus, and now his clothes for men are sold at upscale department stores, and he's got a team of 50 people working for him right here in New York City. You are going to learn a lot from Tom Patterson. Enjoy. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining us on Radiate. Thanks for having me. It's funny. I've just started to notice that more and more people are talking to me about your product. I've got more and more friends who are are raving about your undergarments. So tell me a little bit about kind of the idea or how did you start Tommy John? I mean, the idea was originated from a problem that I just wasn't solved on the market. So my background was, you know, I was a medical device salesman. I wore a suit and tie every day to work and I always wore an undershirt. And as my shirting and suiting was becoming tailored and you know, I was starting to dart it, I still couldn't find an undershirt that solved my problems, which were coming untucked, shrinking, turning yellow, stretching out, and just turning into something I would clean the floors or my car with a couple months later. And I, there was a show called The Big Idea on MSNBC. And the premise of the show was entrepreneurs would come on and think, maybe there's a better way to make something. And you know, I thought I would wake up every day thinking, gosh, what can I improve on? What are some problems that I have, whether it's a cell phone cover or a shoelace? And one morning I got out of my car going into a hospital in San Diego where I was living at the time. And I got out of the car and my dress shirt was tucked in, but my undershirt which was already bunched up around my belly button. So I have to go to the bathroom, retuck it in. And I thought, why doesn't anyone solve this problem? Of all, all the innovations in technology and clothing and cars, it seems like the undershirt hasn't evolved since, you know, 1900. Right. So I started going to department stores and turning them inside out. And I found the common theme is that they were designed to fit everyone, but customized to fit no one very well. And I, as a result, I went up to the garment district in downtown Los Angeles uh, with my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, bought some fabric, took it to a tailor at a dry cleaners two blocks from where I lived with a sketch that I drew with my second grade art skills and said, I would like you to make a shirt designed like this. It's longer, it's more fitted, it has a V-shaped design. And I just wanted to see if the idea worked. You know, I figured it's a hundred dollars, it's it's dinner for two, you know, I have nothing to lose. And the concept worked. Uh, the next step, I made 15 more shirts. I sent them out to friends of mine, and these are the type of friends that would say, Tom, this is an incredible idea, or Tom, this is a really bad idea, or is there something else going on in your life? So I knew I'd get honest, credible feedback. And a week later, almost all of them called back and said, Tom, if you ever make more of these, I will buy them from you. So. Mm. 
I went back up to the garment district in downtown Los Angeles and literally knocked on 10 different fabric suppliers stores, walked in and said, Hey, do you know where I can make some t-shirts? And I had no experience in the fashion industry. I had no connections. I really didn't know where to start. And I think the last guy I went into, he felt sorry for me and called a guy and said, Hey, I have this young man. Can you help him make some t-shirts? So I went down to Chinatown in downtown LA, found, you know, a cash only uh, production facility. Right. And, and he helped me walk me through how to make patterns and markers and grading and came back a week later, picked up the shirts, started selling them to friends, built a two page PayPal checkout website in April, 2008 and started selling them online. And the next six months I would sell them into independent men's specialty stores to really understand what and get the gauge of you know what people's interests would be. And in the fall of 2008, when the financial crisis and the housing crisis began, I was laid off my medical sales job. The company I was working for did not get an FDA approval. And I read this article that... Wait, so, no, so, so, yeah. so hang on one second, Tom, because because you're, you're going through a lot of things that have... A, a culmination of things that have happened. And, and I think about... And I, as I'm listening to him thinking, this all sounds so easy... But I'm sure it was really, really hard. Yeah, it was. You know, it was. It was hard from the standpoint that I was trying to sell a concept that no one really knew, and it was from a brand, Tommy John, that they had never heard of. Right. But my advantage, my my skill set was strategic selling, and I was trained on how to get to decision makers and how to communicate product knowledge about a technical product. So instead of selling a medical device supported by clinical studies, I was now selling an underwear or uh, sorry, an undershirt back my supported by my problems and my perspective on the men's market. And right. the, the first two stores I, I walked into wouldn't even carry it. So the third store I went into, I said, put it on consignment. I'll come back a week later and you can pay me for what your customers buy. And that's how we started. I had to put it on shelves for free. And to prove that the concept worked, there was no risk to the men's store or the retailer. And and that was really helpful for me because I understood how the wholesale retail selling process worked. It was somewhat slightly different than the medical device selling process. But you know sales cold. I mean, that's what you do, right? Yeah, for me, I mean, selling is telling is selling. I'm not a aggressive hard seller. I think, you know, if you have a great product, it makes it a lot easier. And I really believed in the product at the end of the day, regardless of what the first two guys, you know, their feedback was. And you also have to take for granted that San Diego is probably not the best market for men's undershirts <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day. I mean, it's great for flip-flops and board shorts and casual apparel. And that's ultimately why we gravitated to New York City a few years later. Right. But yes, starting out was very, very challenging. But, you know, for me, the best thing that ever happened is, was getting laid off of my medical sales job. Yes. You know, it really pushed me to have this 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 thought where I don't want to be a coulda, woulda, shoulda guy. I don't want to think 20 years from now. What if I would have pursued that idea? I could have. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't own a home. And the realization I came, came to is the worst thing that happens is I lose my 401k. I lose all my savings. I can still go back and get a medical sales job. I was good at it. I liked it. I didn't love it. And I just didn't want to have this life of regrets. And that reading an article around that time said that there's no better time to start a company than during a recession, which we were starting to enter into in you know the fall of 2008. Which article was it? Do you remember? 
I can probably find it. I, I want to say it was an Alan Greenspan article. Wow. It was some, it was, it was some, it was, had some, something tied to economics. Hmm. It might've been Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but basically the statistics said that there's no better time to start a business than, than at the bottom of the economy. Yeah. Because no one's willing to take risks. Everyone's playing it safe. So you know, when everyone's in a, you know, zigging one way, if you zag the other way, there'll probably be less competition. And I, I really felt we had a differentiated product that ultimately retail buyers would want during a time like that, because it's, it's, there's a better story to tell. And our products solved a problem that every guy ultimately has who wore undershirts. So I looked at it as more opportunistic and, and an advantage so, and I think, you know, in hindsight, starting a company during that time, it really forced you to watch every dollar you spent, you know, and I think a lot of companies that were overspending really have a hard time getting through those tough times because their overhead's really high, their expenses are really high. So we've only grown <laughs> since right. 2008. So I think there's a lot to be said for starting a company, you know, at what a lot of people would say the worst time or the bottom of the market. Describe to me though that moment, because that must have been a big life changing moment when you got laid off. I mean, as you say, you know, you were thinking, you know, you don't want to be the coulda, woulda, shoulda guy. But I mean, clearly you were, it sounds like you were kind of preparing for this moment at some point because you were, you were doing this even before you got laid off. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had lawn mowing businesses and snow blowing businesses and painting businesses when I was growing up, you know, as a kid. Right. So I'd always, you're always an always, entrepreneur. Yeah, I was always an entrepreneur, and I, it always works. And my mentality was, I'll start my my own business someday when some idea comes to me, whether I'm you know 28 when it did, or 39 or 49. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I'll use you know use my opportunities in the career that I have to learn as much as I can, so I can apply that to my business when the time is right. And yeah, I had started it on the side on the weekends, and you know when I had time off gauging it and seeing, is this really an idea before I actually jump in? And I think sometimes a lot of people just need to be pushed. And I, that was certainly pushed. And, you know, it's, I, I guess I just didn't want to play things safe anymore. I looked at a lot of people that I admired, whether it was entrepreneurs or what I thought were successful people. And they had all had a moment where something happened and they had this realization like, you know what, I don't want to have regrets. And mm -hmm. not that I had regrets, it's just, you know, it's, it's a great feeling when you know you've exhausted everything so you don't regret it. And I, I just didn't want to be wondering, wishing, what if yeah. I could have. And that was, you know, that was the moment when it happened. And I happened to read that article shortly after. And I just stopped updating my resume and said, I'm going to do this full time and as, as long as I can for, you know, five or six months. And what ended up happening is I ended up getting a meeting with a Nima Marcus buyer in Dallas and flew out to Dallas and I literally had $800 left in my bank account at the time. And it was about the time where I was going to start updating my resume. And I thought, this is it. This is my shot. That's a sign. That, that's a sign. And, you know, we ended up getting launched into 15 Neiman Marcus stores in the August of 2009. We had a record sell through. As a result, we went into all stores a month later and I took that success. And I went to Nordstrom and said, let me prove to you that I can replicate the success in your stores. That's amazing. I mean, you had no background, zero background in retail, and you were able to convince Nima Marcus to put your product in their stores. I mean, how exactly did you do that? I mean, was it, you know, 
good looks and a cup of coffee or what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I only wish it was that easy. You know, the, I remember the buyer was, was a woman and I, I, I felt women didn't really understand the problems that men have with their undershirts, not because they're not a, a customer, but historically most guys don't go home and say, honey, I was at work today. I was in a meeting, my undershirt bunched up and I had to turn around and retuck it in. So, so no one saw, but they kind of did. Guys don't talk about these things. So as a result, women really don't know they exist. So when I scheduled the meeting with her, um, I, I requested, I said, I want to send shirts to all the guys in the office and your husband. So by the time I meet with you in person, they're able to give you feedback and also send one to you so you can wear it. And I ended up going and meeting with her in Dallas and did my presentation. She said that was great. And in my presentation, I asked for a, a five-store test of our product. And she said, actually, every day this week, there's been a different guy that's came into the office saying how amazing your shirts are. I don't know if you have personal relationships with these guys or if you've done something on the side. And I was like, no, I haven't done anything like that. But she's, she said, they will not stop talking about it. So as a result, we're going to put you in 15 stores. But you have to guarantee to buy back all the inventory if you don't sell 60% of it uh, by the end of December, which would have been about five months, hmm. four, four and a half or five months. And for me, it was like, what, what do I have to lose at this point? This is everything right. I've done up until now is for this moment. And I thought, yes, of course, of course I'll do it. So, um, what I, ended up, what I ended up doing though is I went to each of those 15 Nemo Marcus stores. So, Monday through Thursday, I would be in Los Angeles, you know, working on marketing materials, going to the factories, putting boxes together, literally folding the underwear, putting UPC stickers on the outside, bringing them to the warehouse. And then on Friday morning, I would fly out to a city. And Friday afternoon, all day Saturday and Sunday morning, I would spend time in those stores. And I would do the morning rally where I would do a product knowledge seminar to the entire store with all the male and female employees, telling them who I was what my company is, what the problems we solve are, and where I'll be in the store so I could talk to customers. I, to, you know, I was able to understand how to position the product, how to sell it, what customers didn't know, what they did know, what they wanted to see different. And for me, it was just, I was a sponge. I wanted to learn as much as possible. So when we went to into Nordstrom, I did the same thing. So I think my first year in retail, I went to over a hundred stores myself in person. So I lived on planes, um, crashing on French couches, renting cars, and really just bootstrapped everything for the, for the first year to kind of get it off the ground. So my approach was different. I didn't hire a salesperson. I couldn't. I didn't hire a sales team or merchandisers. I went there myself. But I think the it was more credible because it wasn't only the brand, it was actually the founder. So right. people had a personal connection. And on top of that, the product does everything that he says. It walks the talk, so to say. And it I remember sells itself. One it sells itself once you get it on their body. And that's the, that's the biggest challenge. And the biggest upside is men are really hard to change. You know, but if you can get them to change and try something new and they end up liking it, you have a very loyal customer for a really long time. So that's, that's what I love about the men's market the most. You were saying one time. What story were you going to tell? Oh, so I, I remember I went to Neiman Marcus in Nordstrom and a guy came in and he tried on one of our undershirts and he said, wow, this is amazing. I'll take 32 of them. <laughs> And it was, you know, a $1,600 sale. And I think he, 
it literally wiped out all of the inventory for the entire weekend <laughs> in that store in North Park. And I remember looking at the manager and his mouth dropped and he was like, oh, you couldn't even believe it. So, But that was a really defining moment. That must have been a great moment. It was literally, it took him two minutes to, to talk about the product, what it does. And it resulted in a great customer experience, um, a great sales day for the store. And, and that's really when I kind of looked at things differently and thought, wow, this could, this I think this is going to be a much bigger opportunity, but the key is just to get guys to try on the product. So clearly, you're you're really good at sales. I mean, clearly, you know that that is your background, and you're it, and clearly also you have had this entrepreneurial itch that you've wanted to scratch. So part of what we want to do on the show is we want to teach people things as well, and like how do they learn from your experience? So I'm curious on the sales side. I mean, you know, Tom, what would you say is you know are some of the secrets that you've employed, or like how do you sell well? You know, what is it that you do that, you know, that makes, that allows you to sell products at a greater rate than other people? Well, I think you, know, you can be the greatest salesperson in the world, but if you don't have the greatest product, you'll never reach the potential. And I, I felt that I had the best product. I was convinced. No one could convince me otherwise. And, right. and it, it, had been, it had been confirmed by a lot of experts in the retail industry. So, so you knew the product was great. Yeah. You know, I would go into stores and literally I would pitch differently for the first month when I talked to customers to the point where I said, hey, do you wear undershirts? Yeah, I wear them every day. Say, hey, this is a new product. The company's Tommy John. I can tell you about it until I'm blue in the face because I'm the founder of the company. But I'll tell you what, the best proof in the, the proof is in the pudding. So try this on with the dress shirts and ties and dress, and dress pants you're going to go try on in the changing room. And we'll, what we ended up doing is tracking four out of five guys who would try on one of our undershirts in a store would leave the store with one or more. So for me, I would ask more questions to get them thinking about the problem that they have. Yeah, I wear undershirts. Do they ever bunch up or come untucked or shrink or turn yellow? Yeah, actually they do. It drives me crazy. What do you do? I fold them over. I tuck them into my underwear, which is probably not the best visual. I buy a size bigger, so they're, but they're longer and then they're baggier. I met a guy at a wedding. He cuts them off at the belly button so they don't ride up anymore, but they absorb perspiration. So it's just Interesting visuals I'm getting. <laughs> so, so guys have literally turned into MacGyver to try to, you know, Jimmy rig, so to say, their undershirts to make them work in a way that, you know, made their life better. So I, I would really focus on the problem and then tell them about the solution. And we solve this problem you no longer have to deal with. And I think for guys to talk about clothing is very unusual, let alone underwear and undershirts. But when right. they find a product that solves a problem that they've had and maybe given up on or just kind of dealt with, it's it's turned into like a life-changing moment for a lot of guys where they end up you know, telling people like you about an undershirt or a pair right. of underwear. And it's just a really taboo category to talk about in general where guys talking about underwear to other guys, let alone women, in front of kids and you know places like that, <laughs> right. it's turned into a really funny icebreaker conversation from friends and customers that we hear all the time. Now you mentioned so you bootstrapped this company yourself. I mean, what did you have to put in? Like, how much did it take to start the company? And were you profitable right from the beginning? I mean, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, starting out, it was really my personal savings. I, I remember I built a website for three thousand dollars from a friend of mine. Um, 
I did the modeling myself on a roof in San Diego near the beach, who a, fr- a photographer friend of mine did. And we used those images for packaging. Um, and we created a box packaging program. So all in all, I think the startup expenses just to build the inventory, the website, the photography was around $5,000. And then I had the inventory, which is in, you know, a different liability of around, I don't remember exactly, probably you know three to $4,000. And that's I would start selling it. Literally, it was in my garage. And I didn't carry a lot of inventory. I didn't want to have a, a lot of inventory liability. But when I left my medical sales job, that's when I started focusing. We started making underwear and we started making uh, additional fabrications. And then when I got picked up by Nima Marcus, um, that was around, I want to say, a fifteen dollars or $20,000 order for us. Wow. Which, which I had to fund and, and ended up funding it through my 401k, my savings. Wow. And I, I put a lot of other expenses using my friends at American Express, Visa, and MasterCard in the meantime. And what, what ended up happening when we got launched into Neiman Marcus, the buyer said, are you, are you on EDI or Factor? And I said, I don't think so. I don't know what those mean. And a factor is basically a credit facility who will finance a purchase order and take a percentage of that purchase order value and they'll pay you for it right up front so you can use that cash to operate your business and then when the retailer pays you 45 days later you pay back that loan with the additional interest so it's a way to finance purchase orders for retail opportunities but still have cash to operate within so i figured out how, what a factor was um, started working with the factoring facility and then EDI is it's an electronic data interchange system where department stores send purchased orders electronically to a vendor like Tommy John. So a lot of this stuff, I didn't know what the words were. I didn't know what the names meant. And mm-hmm. I thank God for the internet. We were able to figure it out. You just kind of figure it out along the way. And was it, was it just you in the beginning? Who joined you on this, Tom? Yeah, so the first year, um, for the most part, it was myself. My wife helped me, you know, from inventory, helping fold shirts, <laughs> lit rolling our, my, my dog's hair off of them before I would put them in a Ziploc bag to ship out the next day. <laughs> and, you know, she was kind of sitting watching, and she was in software sales at the time. And right after I got launched into Nima Marcus, she was laid off of her software sales job. So I uh, created an internship position at Tommy John and I printed it out and I posted it on the mirror in the bathroom. So when she got out of the shower, she applied into the internship (laughs) program and she ended up helping me because she thought, all right, this seems interesting. He's starting to get get traction and her, her strengths were really the operational inventory planning financials where my skill set was more product marketing branding sales so it really complemented areas where I was going to need help moving forward and she still works with me today and it's it's been you know it's been a really fun relationship but you know she's been there since day one and been there during every change in the company as it's evolved and that's unusual I mean it's sometimes it's very difficult for a husband and wife to work together right I mean much less start a whole company together yeah I mean you hear it a lot uh you know I grew up in a family where my my grandma and grandpa worked together my parents worked together so I had always been around it I had never planned for it by any means but I think it you hear that it works more often when there's opposite skill sets 
and there's not as much overlap. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's worked really well for us. Um, so, but aside from your wife, at what point did you make your first hire? So for our first hire was when we moved to New York. So the company started in 2008. I started doing it full-time in 2009. We moved to New York City in October of 2010. And at the end of I want to say halfway through the middle of 2011, we actually ended up hiring the assistant buyer from Nima Marcus, who was going to be moving to New York because her husband got a job here. And I had heard that. Is this the same buyer who gave you the chance? It was, it was the assistant buyer to that buyer. <laughs> so, so I had heard she was coming here and I, I, I loved her. I loved her the way she thought. She, she obviously had a, a lot of familiarity with our business, which was an asset. So, um, she started working with us, our first employee, yeah, I want to say in 2011, Yvette. But, you know, the first, so the funny thing is, Betty, is, you know, we were in all these great retailers like Nordstrom and Nima Marcus, and, you know, everyone thinks like, wow, you guys must be doing incredibly well. How many people do you have working for the company? No one really knew unless they asked. I would tell them that world headquarters was five feet from our bed on 21st and 6th in our one bed, one bedroom, 500 square foot apartment with our 110 pound Bernice mountain dog (laughs) marketing sales inventory. And we, you know, we had like a $1.5 million business, but it was self-funded and the, you know, the more revenue we would, the more revenue would grow, the more money we would put into building it into inventory, into systems, into other things. So cash was always a challenge and we ended up moving out of our apartment when we hired our first employee on 20, moved to an office on 20th and 5th. And, and she, she no longer works there. She ended up moving back to Washington, D.C., but that was our first employee. So, Tom, I want to talk a little bit about not just the growth of your company or you know how you started it, but I mean, now you have, remind us again, so now you have how many employees? 50. Wow, 50. And how much... Have you have you disclosed how much in revenue are you making now? We don't disclose revenue, but we have grown around two point four x each of the last two years, and you know we're forecasting one hundred percent growth in twenty sixteen. Wow! And have you taken outside money, or has this all been organic? We we raised a, real, a very small Series A round of one point five million in two thousand twelve. Okay. So it was fully bootstrapped. Up until then, and even even based on our business size now, it's still a very small amount. And for me, it was, you know, I I want to maintain maintain control of the company, and I think there's just a lot of companies that I admire in the in the market, whether it's Under Armour or Spanx or Nike. I think there's a lot to be said for founder led companies that just kind of have this gut instinct about the market and the brand and the products that you know you don't see from a lot of companies as they continue to get more and more funding. And that was kind of my strategy. And, you know, you can argue, did you sacrifice growth? Did you sacrifice other things? And I think it ultimately depends on what your, your, your long-term vision is for your business. So how has your life changed? I mean, since, I mean, from growing from just yourself and your wife, uh, you know, uh, doing this a uh, hundred feet from your, from your bedroom to now you've got, you know, an office in New York and you've got 50 employees. Like, tell me like, like, how has your life changed exactly? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, there's definitely more people around. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're not alone anymore. You're not alone anymore. Well, are you still doing the sales calls? Like, are you like, I mean, clearly you can't do everyone, but I mean, are you doing, are you still the top salesperson at the company? You know, I am. We're actually 
in the process of bringing in a director of sales. But you know we've we're you know we're in Nordstrom and Dillard's and Bloomingdale's and you know a handful of men's specialty stores across the country. But I think the way we've we've just found a different way to grow a business without a lot of resources. And we've figured out how to streamline certain parts of the business to make them more efficient without a lot of overhead. So I would say from that standpoint, we're very lean, but I would say we're probably one of the more efficient companies in our space that you'll find. And I think you can only run super lean for so long, but you know, for us, it, I think it's been a blessing in disguise because we, we really haven't developed a lot of bad habits. And we've always spent a dollar like it's our last dollar. And we've always had to really be fiscally responsible with all the decisions we made. But now, of course, you're not doing everything. I mean, four or five years ago, if you called in Tommy John on our 1-800 number, it's more more likely than not you would speak to me. Right. <laughs> so there's obviously many layers removed from that. Did anybody ever call you Tommy John, by the way? I mean, you know, friends, anyone that's known me since I was in diapers still calls me Tommy. Uh, <laughs> And but yeah, I mean, a friend call me Tommy John, but for the most part, it's 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 Tom right. at this point. Right. So so Tom, usually what we do is is towards the end of the interview, you know, we like to ask a, a few sort of advice questions, you know, direct management questions, so that people can learn from you know learn from your experience. You know, for instance, you know, one example would be, you know, how do you how do you find talent? Like you've grown, you know, you've had to grow so quickly that I'm sure there were points in, in, in your company's history that you just had to hire somebody like yesterday. So how did you, how do you find good talent? That's a great question. I mean, New York's a really competitive market. You know, LinkedIn is a great tool. Many people who are employed at the company today were based off of personal messages that I sent to them saying, hey, I'm sure you've never thought about working for a men's underwear brand, but I'd love to take you out for a cup of coffee. Worst case scenario, you learn something new about a product or a brand that you never thought you would. And I found that to be a really uh, successful message to at least get a face-to-face meeting with a lot of people. And, you know, as I've been around in New York for five years now, you, you start to meet different people through different connections in, you know, in the fashion industry, what in the tech industry. So really just referrals, word of mouth, going to events, uh, LinkedIn. Um, we've used recruiters for, you know, certain hires, but just lots of meetings. And, but I think one of the advantages that we've had is there's really there's hardly any roles at the company still today that me or my wife have not done in some way, shape or form from customer service to inventory planning, to sales, to marketing, uh, to operations. And I think that, that you can't really measure the value of that. And because you know your business so well, you know, to a certain point, the type of talent you need to look for and the questions to ask. And a lot of it, it comes down to maybe intuition and I'm also big on checking on references and I, you know, I ask a lot of questions and really be sure, but you know, a couple, a year and a half ago, we ended up hiring a head of people who now, who now does all of our screening, our recruiting. And now we have shifted the way we hire is you can be the most talented engineer in New York city or the most talented marketer in New York city. But if you don't fit the culture that we're trying to develop at Tommy John, it, it won't work. And I think culture is becoming more important every day for us and kind of what we mean, you know, what we mean to employees and, and their balance of work and life. And I think right. when I looked at companies, you know, you always hear about people, what they don't like about companies and the, the company we're trying to create is I want people to like it here. I want them to like 
the people that they sit next to or the people that they're eating lunch with. And, you know, you should never dread Mondays. You should be excited days coming into work. And I think we're really proud of the people and the culture that we've developed. And, you know, we were rated Crane's top 100 companies to work for in, in 2015. So, you know, exciting things like that have happened. But I think a lot of it's just because we're building a company around people people and you know uh things that my wife and i stand for at the end of the day no i think i think that is so important i think culture is so important um on the flip side you know on the flip side of hiring i mean you know have you had to uh cut people you know fire people as well who are not performing at your company and if you have you know how have you done it what's the best way to do that yeah, I mean, of course. I think it just comes comes through experience. You know, you're never going to have a hundred percent success rate. And I remember I was so nervous to have to 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 let go our first person. I talked to you know some of my mentors and advisors, and you know, there's a process that you need to follow, and it was really tough. But I think what I realized is when you sat down and met with that person, they knew that they weren't performing. It's almost like they had been waiting, and they they kind of knew things right, and they you know it wasn't working out for either one of you. And, you know, when I told them how the conversation went, they said, congratulations. Now you know how hard it is. And now you know what to hire for to make sure you minimize that as much as possible. And I think that's when I had the realization that culture is so critical mm-hmm. and you need to look for other things other than what's on a resume. You know, one thing I always look for is grit. You know, did you, you know, did you work when you went to school? Were you involved in sports? Were you involved in activities? Which means you typically work with teams very well. So there's things that I kind of hire for and we have that we interview for as part of the recruiting process that has allowed us to screen out um, a lot of, you know, potential situations that wouldn't work out work out for us. And I think, you know, so we take our time hiring and finding the right people. But I think recruiting is just a never-ending process. You know, I'm starting to meet pe- with people now that I think, will be great for us one or two years from now. So I have a relationship developed. They know about the company. I can keep them updated. And I think that's the art of scaling and growing is kind of identifying your needs, but also planning ahead so you're not stuck with, I need to hire that person yesterday. Uh, you know, I always hear that all the time that, you know, that hiring somebody, you know, hiring can be one of the most important decisions and can also become one of the biggest mistakes people make when they start companies, right? It's not, it's not getting that right person in. Um, and, and it can be very costly. So, you know, it, it's a it's a subject that's of huge interest to, you know, to the people that listen to this to this show. Is there, you know, you and I, Tom, talked about, uh, about man, you know, about time management. C- can you look back and think about like, um, you know, a mistake that you've made early on or a mistake that you made recently that you've corrected and learned a lot from and learned from that mistake and, you know, have applied some new technique to it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's a certain mistake. I, I think one of the challenges a lot of founders have when they start businesses is identifying when they need to delegate things. And I think, you know, it starts with delegating inventory planning and then delegating e-commerce and delegating marketing and delegating customer service. And you think it's going to free up all this time for you, but other things just end up absorbing all that time that you didn't have time to focus on. And, you know, I would say in the last couple of years, I've really got into time hacking, so to say, and how do you hack efficiencies so you can get back or 
get the most out of the time that you have. And, you know, we talked about this with the article that you wrote and, it, yep. you know, it looked at things that are just sucking up my time and how do I delegate them? If I don't have someone to delegate them to, who do I need here? Because at the end of the day, you owe it to the employees at your company to be focusing on the things that are, that are going to continue to allow you to have success. And if you're bogged down in the details, that's, it mean, to me, it means there's something wrong. So I would say one of the things I think that freed up a ton of time was hiring an assistant. You know, a year and a half ago, I was running my calendar. I was constantly late for meetings and it would just create a domino effect that would compound throughout the day where I have to reschedule, cancel a couple meetings. And now having an assistant who can kind of focus on the calendar, follow up, making sure people are coming at the time that they're committing to, pulling me out of meetings so I can prepare for my next meeting, that's allowed me to be more efficient. And I th I've heard that from a lot of people because I said, here's my struggle. And they said, you need an assistant. Why haven't you hired one yet? I'm like, I don't know. This is my first company. I don't. I, what does an assistant do exactly? It's incredible you've been doing it without one. Yeah, but yeah, I think, you know, I, whether it's naive or just not knowing, I think I've never been scared to ask questions and I've never thought, you know, I... I I know nothing as far as it, as far as fashion's concerned, and I think you can learn you can learn so much when you have an open mind to everything. Um, and I think that's just one thing I've learned is there's no exact handbook for what I'm doing and the business that we're building. There is to a certain extent for businesses that have been in the fashion industry, but the way our business is being built is unique and different from a lot of different aspects. But Internal processes from, you know, the way meetings are ran, how you manage your people. I think that is consistent across many companies. But each company has their own kind of, you know, customization to it, so to say. And I yeah. think it's, it's evolving, too, with the type, you know, whether you call it the millennials or just technology, it's changing the way everything works. Was there anything else that you wanted to, you wanted to get across at all in terms of, the biggest advice questions you get asked now that you're on your way to success. They always ask the question that you ask, was there a defining moment or a reason you just decided to take the plunge and, and do this? And I think it comes down to just not having regrets and not letting people talk you out of ideas. I think everyone has a great idea at some point in their life and whether they're not confident enough or people talk them out of it, there can be a ton of excuses, right? I mean, the couch and watching TV is a, TV is a big ex excuse not to do something. It's much easier to do that than to start a company. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> people, people move to the United States from all over the world. There's no better country to start a company, in my opinion, than here. Yeah. And, you know, you can sit around and complain about it or create all these excuses and reasons why you can't. But at the end of the day, I think there's no better time to start a company than today because of the Internet. Anyone can create a product and start selling it online. Where in the past, before that, it was a lot more challenging and complex. You'd have to go to Dallas and speak to retailers and department stores yep. like I did. So I think that's that's just one of the really exciting things. And I think it's there's never been a more exciting time than today to be an entrepreneur, regardless of all the, the noise and things you hear about the economy. The hardest part is just getting started. But but even listening to your story, I mean, you know, you were able to start this company with what sounds like less than $10,000. I mean, that's incredible. Right. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, it might have been $50,000 or more. Yeah. You know, fortunately, I had a friend that really knew how to maximize credit cards and credit limits <laughs> also. And <laughs> I had that already set up at the time, too. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain element of risk. And, you know, you know, for me, I just it comes down to just not having regrets and finding something you like and 
I think the last thing I ever thought I would be doing is living in New York City selling men's underwear. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a small town in South Dakota, so it's it's very opposite from kind of what I was supposed to do or be. But I think everyone finds something. You don't find what you ultimately love unless you try and keep trying different things. And you know that's ultimately how I ended up here. And I think a lot of people just kind of get stuck in a certain state of mind and a company and they like it but they don't love what they do and I just I would just hear that and I think gosh you have a choice you yeah, don't have yeah. to do that and I think that's what a lot of people need to hear and that's what I would want the listeners to hear at the end of the day too next week on Radiate he's the ultimate value investor Mary Gabelli has survived a rough and tumble life growing up in the Bronx and on Wall Street what Gabelli learned in the school of hard knocks and why he has little sympathy for touchy-feely philosophies in the workplace Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. If you liked what you heard, please review us and subscribe to us on iTunes. Also, follow me on Twitter at Radiate Inc. and like us on Facebook. See you next week on Radiate.